Lesson 5 for July 27 through August 2, The Cry of the Prophets, read by Dr. Percy Harold. Sabbath afternoon, July 27. Before we start, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and what it brings to us. We thank you that it shows us who you are and what you would like for us and what you would like us to do as part of your will, so that we can be the sort of Christians who represent you, the ones that show your love and grace and compassion to those about us. Bless us now as we open your word, we pray in Jesus' dear name. Amen. Our memory text this week is Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Let's read that again, Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? The Old Testament prophets are among the most interesting characters in the Bible. Their strident voices, their bold messages, their sense of grief, anger and outrage, and the occasional performances of these messages made them people who couldn't be ignored even if they might not have always been comfortable to be around. Sent primarily to Israel and Judah, they were beckoning the chosen people back to faithfulness to God. The people and their leaders were too easily swept up by the idols and lifestyles of the surrounding nations. It was the prophet's thankless task to urge them to repent, sometimes by reminding them of God's love for them and his past action on their behalf, and sometimes by warning of the consequences if they continue to walk away from God. As we will see, too, that among the sins and evils that they warned the leaders and people against, one of the biggest was the oppression of the poor, the needy, the helpless among them. Yes, worshipping idols was bad. Yes, following false religious practices was bad. But yes, Taking advantage of the weak and poor was worthy of condemnation as well. Sunday, July 28, The Recurring Call to Justice Despite God's clearly detailed plan for the Israelite nation, the Israelite people rarely lived up to their calling. Not many generations after they were established in the land, they asked Samuel the prophet and judge to appoint a king to lead their nation, such as all the other nations have, as we read in 1 Samuel chapter 8, and verse 5. Question. Read First Samuel chapter 8, verses 10 through to 18. What was Samuel's warning to the people in response to their request for a king? First Samuel chapter 8, beginning at verse 10. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, 
This is what the king who will reign over you will claim as his rights. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties, and others to plough his ground and reap his harvests, and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants. Your male and female servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys he will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his slaves. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. Samuel recognized this as a step toward being like the other nations in other ways as well. While Samuel sought to counsel the first king, Saul, it was not long before his prophecy began to become reality. Even at the height of the Israelite kingdom, David and Solomon did not escape the temptations, corruption and excesses of their power. Throughout the reigns of the kings of Israel and Judah, one of God's responses was to send prophets to speak his will and to remind the Israelite leaders and people of their God-given responsibilities to the forgotten members of their society. In the writings of the Hebrew prophets, we see a continuing and recurring call to live justly and to do justice in society. Confronting the unfaithfulness of Israel and its leaders, the prophets were a regular and urgent voice for the voiceless, particularly those who were hurt by Israel's failure to follow God's will. Reflecting on the passion of the Old Testament prophets, Abraham Joshua Herschel contrasts our complacency with their urgent calls for justice, writing in The Prophets, page 3 and 4, the things that horrified the prophets are even now daily occurrences all over the world. Their breathless impatience with injustice may strike us as hysteria. We ourselves witness continually acts of injustice, manifestations of hypocrisy, falsehood, outrage, misery, but we rarely grow indignant or overly excited. To the prophets, even a minor injustice assumes cosmic proportions. End of quote. What these prophets offer us is an insight into the heart and mind of God. Speaking on behalf of God, they can help us see the injustices and sufferings of our world through God's tear-filled eyes. But this passion is also a call to action, to work with God, to relieve and remedy the oppression and sorrow of those around us. So to finish the day, how do we sometimes seek to be like all the other nations, in ways that might be harmful to us and others?
Monday, July 29, Amos. The prophet Amos writes, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd, and also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, Go prophesy to my people Israel. That's from Amos chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. Amos was quite open in admitting his lack of qualifications for being a prophet. But, as he presents his message to the Israelite nation, he shows an obvious ability to draw his hearers into what he wants to tell them. He begins on a popular note, listing off the surrounding nations, Syria, Philistia, Phoenicia, Edom, Ammon and Moab, and detailing their crimes, outrages and atrocities for which God will punish them, as we read in Amos chapter 1, verse 3, through to chapter 2 and verse 3. And beginning at Amos chapter 1 and verse 3, this is what the Lord says, For three sins of Damascus, even for four, I will not relent, because she threshed Gilead, with sledges having iron teeth. I will send fire on the house of Hazael, that will consume the fortress of Ben-Hadad, I will break down the gate of Damascus, I will destroy the king who is in the valley of Aven, and the one who holds the scepter of Beth Eden. The people of Aram will go into exile to Kur, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Gaza, even for four, I will not relent, because she took captive whole communities and sold them to Edom. I will send fire on the walls of Gaza that will consume her fortresses. I will destroy the king of Ashdod and the one who holds the scepter in Ashkelon. I will take my hand against Ekron till the last of the Philistines are dead, says the Sovereign Lord. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Tyre... Even for four I will not relent, because she sold whole communities of captives to Edom, disregarding the treaty of brotherhood. I will send fire on the walls of Tyre that will consume her fortresses. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Edom, even for four I will not relent, because she pursued his brother with a sword and slaughtered the women of the land, because his anger raged continually and his fury flamed unchecked. I will send fire on Teman that will consume the fortress of Bozrah. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Ammon, even for four I will not relent because he ripped out the pregnant women of Gilead in order to extend his borders. I will set fire to the walls of Rabbah that will consume her fortresses amid war cries on the day of battle, amid violent winds on a stormy day. Her king will go into exile, he and his officials together, says the Lord. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Moab, even for four, I will not relent because he burned to ashes the bones of Edom's king. I will send fire on Moab, that will consume the fortresses of Kerioth. Moab will go down in great tumult. Amid war cries and the blast of the trumpet, I will destroy her ruler and kill all her officials. With him, says the Lord. It is easy to imagine the Israelites applauding these indictments of their enemies, particularly as many of the crimes of these nations had been directed against the Israelites themselves. 
Then Amos moves a little closer to home, declaring God's judgment against the people of Judah, Israel's southern neighbours in the now-separated kingdoms. Speaking on behalf of God, Amos cites their rejection of God, their disobedience to his commands, and the punishments that would come to them, as we read in Amos chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This is what the Lord says, For three sins of Judah, even for four, I will not relent, because they have rejected the law of the Lord, and have not kept his decrees, because they have been led astray by false gods, the gods their ancestors followed. I will send fire on Judah that will consume the fortresses of Jerusalem. Again, we can imagine the people in the northern kingdom applauding as Amos points out the wrongdoing of those around them. But then Amos turns on his audience. The rest of the book focuses on Israel's evil, idolatry, injustice and repeated failures in the sight of God. Question, read Amos, chapter 3, verses 9 to 11, chapter 4, verse 1, chapter and 2, chapter 5, verses 10 to 15, and chapter 8, verses 4 and 6. What sins is Amos warning against? First of all, Amos 3, beginning at verse 9. Proclaim to the fortresses of Ashdod and to the fortresses of Egypt. Assemble yourselves on the mountains of Samaria. See the great unrest within her and the oppression among her people. They do not know how to do right, declares the Lord, who store up in their fortresses what they have plundered and looted. Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. An enemy will overrun your land pull down your strongholds and plunder your fortresses. And chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan and Mount Samaria, you women who oppress the poor and crush the needy, and say to your husbands, bring us some drinks. The Sovereign Lord has sworn by His Holiness, the time will surely come when you will be taken away with hooks, the last of you with fish hooks. And Amos chapter 5 verses 10 to 15. These are those who hate the one who upholds justice in court and detest the one who tells the truth. You levy a straw tax on the poor and impose a tax on their grain. Therefore, though you have built stone mansions, you will not live in them. Though you have planted lush vineyards, you will not drink their wine. For I know how many of your offences and how great your sins." There are those who oppress the innocent and take bribes and deprive the poor of justice in the courts. Therefore, the prudent keep quiet in such times, for the times are evil. Seek good, not evil, that you may live. Then the Lord God Almighty will be with you, just as you say he is. Hate evil, love good, maintain justice in the courts. Perhaps the Lord God Almighty will have mercy on the remnant of Joseph. And Amos 8, verses 4 to 6, reading from the New King James Version. Hear this, you who swallow up the needy and make the poor of the land fail, saying, When will the new moon be past, that we may sell grain, and the Sabbath, that we may trade wheat, making the ephah small and the shekel large, falsifying the scales by deceit, that we may buy the poor for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals, even sell the bad wheat? 
While Amos is not diplomatic in his language, and his warnings are those of doom, his message is seasoned with entreaties to turn back to their God. This will include a renewal of their sense of justice and care for the poor among them. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-ending stream, he wrote in Amos 5.24. The last few verses of Amos's prophecy point to a future restoration for God's people, as we read in Amos chapter 9, verses 11 to 15. On that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins, and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom, and all the Gentiles who were called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the ploughman shall overtake the reaper, and the treader of grapes him who sows seed. The mountains shall drip with sweet wine, and all the hills shall flow with it. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land, and no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. And from Prophets and Kings, page 283, we read, In their hour of deepest apostasy and greatest need, God's message to them was one of forgiveness and hope. End of quote. So to finish the day, are there times we need to be prepared to speak harshly to correct wrong? How do we discern when such language might be appropriate? Tuesday, July 30, Micah. He has shown you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah 6, verse 8. What are ways right now that you can live out these words? Micah 6, 8 is perhaps one of the best-known texts in Scripture. Yet, like many of the verses we make into slogans or posters, we are probably less familiar with the context of the verse than we might admit. Question, read Micah chapter 2, verses 8 to 11, and chapter 3, verses 8 to 12. What were the people doing that Micah condemned? Micah 2, beginning at verse 8. Lately my people have risen up as an enemy. You pull off the robe with the garment from those who trust you, and they pass by like men returned from war. The women of my people are cast out from their pleasant houses, from their children. You have taken away my glory forever. Arise and depart, for this is not your rest, because it is defiled. It shall destroy, yes, with utter destruction, if a man should walk in a false spirit and speak a lie, saying, I will prophesy to you of wine and drink. Even he would be the prattler of this people. And Micah chapter 3, beginning at verse 8. 
But truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord and of justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Now hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert all iniquity, who build up Zion with bloodshed and Jerusalem with iniquity, her heads judge for a bribe, her priests teach for pay, and her prophets divine for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and say, Is not the Lord among us? No harm can come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be ploughed like a field, Jerusalem shall become heaps of ruins, and the mountain of the temple like the bare hills of the forest. The reign of Ahaz as king in Judah saw God's people reach a new low in the history and spirituality of their nation. Idolatry and its various evil practices were increasing. At the same time, as other prophets of the time also noted, the poor continued to be exploited and preyed upon. Micah is no less a prophet of doom than were his contemporaries. Most of his first three chapters express God's anger and sorrow at the evil his people had done, as well as the destruction that was coming their way. But God had not given up on his people. Even the strident voices and harsh messages of the prophets were an indication of God's continued interest in his people. He gave them warnings because of his love and care for them. He longed to forgive and restore them. He would not stay angry forever, as we read in Micah chapter 7, verses 18 to 20. Who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He does not retain his anger forever, because he delights in mercy. He will again have compassion on us and will subdue our iniquities. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will give truth to Jacob and mercy to Abraham, which you have sworn to our fathers from days of old. Such is the context of the well-known formula, act justly, love mercy, walk humbly. It might sound simple. But living such a faith in practical ways is much more challenging, especially when to do so seems so out of step with the surrounding society. Acting justly, loving mercy and walking humbly requires courage and perseverance when others profit from injustice, scoff at mercy and ride proudly. Yet we don't do this alone. When we act this way, we are walking with our God. So to finish today, what is the link between doing justice, loving mercy and walking humbly before God? Wednesday, July 31, Ezekiel. If we were to ask a group of Christians about the sins of Sodom, 
Chances are many would launch into a description of its various sexual sins and other forms of depravity. After all, Genesis 19 verses 1 to 13 does depict a sick and warped society more than ripe for destruction. Let's read that, Genesis 19, beginning at verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night, and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. And they said, No, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned into him and entered his house. Then he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now, before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us, that we may know them carnally. So Lot went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please, let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men, since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. And they said, Stand back. Then they said, This one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men reached out their hands and pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here, son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you have in the city, take them out of this place, for we will destroy this place, because the outcry against them was grown great before the face of the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Interestingly enough, the answer is more complicated than just that. Consider Ezekiel's description in Ezekiel 16.49. Now this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. Though clearly the Lord was not going to overlook the other forms of depravity found in the city, Ezekiel's focus here was on economic injustice and a lack of care for those in need. Could it be that, in the eyes of God, these economic sins were just as bad as the sexual ones. Coming after the time of Amos, Micah and Isaiah, Ezekiel's early prophecies found a similar note of warning of the coming destruction. However, after Jerusalem falls to the Babylonians and its peoples are taken captive, Ezekiel's focus shifts more fully to God's promises of restoration. Question. Read Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 2 to 4 and verses 7 through to 16. Compare God's assessment of the corrupt leaders of Israel with his own shepherding. How does this treatment of the weakest sheep contrast with his methods? 
Ezekiel 34, verses 2 to 4. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, Woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? You eat the fat and clothe yourselves with wool. You slaughter the fatlings, but you do not feed the flock. The weak you have not strengthened, nor have you healed those who were sick, nor bound up the broken, nor brought back what was driven away, nor sought what was lost. But with force and cruelty you have ruled them. And Ezekiel 34 verses 7 through 16. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, says the Lord God, surely because my flock became a prey and my flock became food for every beast of the field because there was no shepherd, nor did my shepherds search for my flock. But the shepherds fed themselves and did not feed my flock. Therefore, O shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my flock at their hand. I will cause them to cease feeding the sheep, and the shepherds shall feed themselves no more. For I will deliver my flock from their mouths, that they may no longer be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day he is among his scattered sheep, so will I seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land. I will feed them on the mountains of Israel, in the valleys and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in good pasture and their folds shall be on the high mountains of Israel. There they shall lie down in a good fold and feed in rich pasture on the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock and I will make them lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek what was lost and bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken and strengthen what was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment." Even as bad as they had been, so as to be compared to Sodom, the Lord still was reaching out to them in hopes of turning them away from their wickedness. In God's renewed plan for his people, they would be back in their land, Jerusalem would be destroyed and the temple would be rebuilt. The festivals God gave would again be celebrated and the land would again be divided equally among the people as their inheritance. As we read in Ezekiel 47 verse 13 through to chapter 48 verse 29. Thus says the Lord God, These are the borders by which you shall divide the land as an inheritance among the twelve tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions, you shall inherit it equally with one another, for I raised my hand in an oath to give it to your fathers, and this land shall fall to you as your inheritance. This shall be the border of the land of the north from the great sea, by the road of to Hethlon, as one goes to Zedad, Hamath, Berathath, Sibraim, which is between the border of Damascus and the border of Hamath, to Hazath Hatikon, which is on the border of Hauran. Thus the boundary shall be from the sea to Hazar Enan, 
the border of Damascus, and as for the north, northward it is the border of Hamath. This is the north side. On the east side you shall mark out the border from between Haran and Damascus and between Gilead and the land of Israel along the Jordan and along the eastern side of the sea. This is the east side. The south side, toward the south, shall be from Tamar to the waters of Meribah by Kadesh along the brook to the great sea. This is the south side toward the south. The west side shall be the great sea from the southern boundary until one comes to a point opposite Hamath. This is the west side. Thus you shall divide this land among yourselves according to the tribes of Israel. It shall be that you will divide it by lot as an inheritance for yourselves and for the strangers who dwell among you and who bear children among you. They shall be to you as native-born among the children of Israel. They shall have an inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall be that in whatever tribe the stranger dwells, there you shall give him his inheritance, says the Lord God. Now these are the names of the tribes from the northern border along the road to Hethlon and the entrance of Hamath to Hazer-Enan, the border of Damascus northward in the direction of Hamath. There shall be one section for Dan from its east and to its west, by the border of Dan from the east side to the west, one section for Asher, by the border of Asher from the east side to the west, one section for Naphtali. By the border of Naphtali, from the east side to the west, one section for Manasseh. By the border of Manasseh, from the east side to the west, one section for Ephraim. By the border of Ephraim, from the east side to the west, one section for Reuben. By the border of Reuben, from the east side to the west, one section for Judah. By the border of Judah, from the east side to the west, shall be the district where you shall set apart 25,000 cubits in width and in length, the same as one of the other portions from the east side to the west, with the sanctuary in the centre. The district that you shall set apart for the Lord shall be 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in width. To these, to the priests, the holy district shall belong. On the north, 25,000 cubits in length. On the west, 10,000 in width. On the east, 10,000 in width. And on the south, 25,000 in length. The sanctuary of the Lord shall be in the centre. It shall be for the priests of the sons of Zadok who were sacked sanctified, who have kept my charge, who did not go astray when the children of Israel went astray, as the Levites went astray. And this district of the land that is set apart shall be to them a thing most holy by the border of the Levites. Opposite the border of the priests, the Levites shall have an area 25,000 cubits in length and 10,000 in width. Its entire length shall be 25,000 and its width 10,000, and they shall not sell or exchange any of it. They may not alienate this best part of the land, for it is holy to the Lord. The 5,000 cubits in width that remain along the edge of the 25,000 shall be for general use by the city, for dwellings and common land, and the city shall be in the centre. These shall be its measurements, the north side, 4,000 
500 cubits, the south side 4,500, the east side 4,500 and the west side 4,500. The common land of the city shall be to the north 250 cubits, to the south 250, to the east 250 and to the west 250. The rest of the length alongside the district of the holy section shall be 10,000 cubits to the east and 10,000 to the west. It shall be adjacent to the district of the holy section, and its produce shall be food for the workers of the city. The workers of the city from all the tribes of Israel shall cultivate it. The entire district shall be 25,000 cubits by 25,000 cubits for square. You shall set apart the holy district with the property of the city. The rest shall belong to the prince, on one side and on the other of the holy district and on the city's property, next to the 25,000 cubits of the holy district, as far as the eastern border and westward, next to the 25,000 as far as the western border, adjacent to the tribal portions. It shall belong to the prince. It shall be the holy district, and the sanctuary of the temple shall be in the centre." Moreover, apart from the possession of the Levites and the possession of the city which are in the midst of what belongs to the prince, the area between the border of Judah and the border of Benjamin shall belong to the prince. As for the rest of the tribes, from the east side to the west, Benjamin shall have one section. By the border of Benjamin, from the east side to the west, Simeon shall have one section. By the border of Simeon, from the east side to the west, Issachar shall have one section. By the border of Issachar, from the east side to the west, Zebulun shall have one section. By the border of Zebulun, from the east side to the west, Gad shall have one section. By the border of Gad, on the south side, toward the south, the border shall be from Tamar to the waters of Meribah by Kadesh, along the brook to the great sea. This is the land which you shall divide by lots as an inheritance among the tribes of Israel, and these are their portions, says the Lord God. It seems obvious that God's intention was that his plan for his people, at first given to Moses and the people of Israel after their rescue from Egypt, would be restarted with the return of his people from captivity. This included concern for the weakest members of society, as well as those who might be considered outsiders. So, to finish it today, how important is it to you that our God is a God who offers second chances, and more, even to his people who have done wrong after having had the chance to make better choices? Thursday, August 1, Isaiah Question, read Isaiah chapter 1, verses 15 to 23, chapter 3, verses 13 to 15, and chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. How would you describe the prophet's response to what he observes in society around him? First of all, Isaiah chapter 1, beginning at verse 15. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not hear. Your hands are full of blood. 
Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Put away the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, rebuke the oppressor, defend the fatherless, plead for the widow. Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be as wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. How the faithful city has become a harlot! It was full of justice, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers, your silver has become dross, your wine mixed with water, your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loves bribes and follows after rewards. They do not defend the fatherless, nor does the cause of the widow come before them. And Isaiah chapter 3, verses 13 through to 15. The Lord stands up to plead and stands to judge the people. The Lord will enter into judgment with the elders of his people and his princes. For you have eaten up the vineyard, the plunder of the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, says the Lord God of hosts, and Isaiah chapter 5, verses 7 and 8. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. Woe to those who join house to house, they add field to field, till there is no place where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. Isaiah's opening sermon, the first five chapters, is a mix of scathing criticism of the kind of society God's people had become, warnings of impending judgment in response to their rejection of God, and continued wrongdoing, and offers of hope if the people would turn back to God and reform their lives and society. But perhaps the strongest emotion that comes through his words is a sense of grief. Based on his understanding of who God is and what he wants for his people, the prophet is mourning what has been lost, the countless forgotten people who are being hurt, and the judgment that is to come on the nation. Isaiah continues this pattern through his prophetic ministry. He urges the people to remember what God has done for them. He also offers these people the hope of what God wants to do for them in the future. Thus, they should seek the Lord now, for this renewed relationship with him will include repenting of their current wrongdoing and changing the way that they treat others. In chapters 58 and 59, Isaiah specifically returns to the concern for justice. He again describes a society in which, as it says in verse 14 of chapter 59, justice is driven back and righteousness stands at a distance. Truth has stumbled in the streets, honesty cannot enter. But he also affirms that God is aware of it and that God will rescue his people. The Redeemer will come, he says in chapter 59, verse 20. Throughout the book of Isaiah, a significant part of the prophet's attention is given to proclaiming the coming Messiah. 
one who would ultimately re-establish God's reign on earth and would bring justice, mercy, healing and restoration with him. And so to finish the day, read Isaiah chapter 9 verses 6 and 7, chapter 11 verses 1 through 5, chapter 42, 1 through 7 and chapter 53, 4 to 6. How do these prophecies fit with what you understand of the life, ministry and death of Jesus? First of all, Isaiah chapter 9 beginning at verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah 11, beginning at verse 1, There shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Lord. His delight is in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by the sight of his eyes, nor decide by the hearing of his ears, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall slay the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his loins, and faithfulness the belt of of his waist. And Isaiah 42, beginning at verse 1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my elect one in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. He will not cry out, nor raise his voice, nor cause his voice to be heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench. He will bring forth justice for truth. He will not fail nor be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands shall wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread forth the earth and that which comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it. The spirit of those who walk on it, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will hold your hand. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from prison, those who sit in darkness from the prison house. And Isaiah 53, beginning at verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. What do these prophecies suggest about the purpose of his coming to this world?
Friday, August 2. Against the marked oppression, the flagrant injustice, the unwanted luxury and extravagance, the shameless feasting and drunkenness, the gross licentiousness and debauchery of their age, the prophets lifted their voices. But in vain were their protests, in vain their denunciation of sin, Ellen White writes in Prophets and Kings, page 282. And from pages 306 and 307, we read, For Isaiah, the outlook was particularly discouraging as regards the social conditions of the people. In their desire for gain, men were adding house to house and field to field. Justice was perverted, and no pity was shown the poor. Even the magistrates, whose duty it was to protect the helpless, turned a deaf ear to the cries of the poor and needy, the widows and the fatherless. In the face of such conditions, it is not surprising that when, during the last year of Isaiah's reign, Isaiah was called to bear to Judah God's messages of warning and reproof. He shrank from the responsibility. He well knew that he would encounter obstinate resistance. And on page 327, these plain utterances of the prophets should be received by us as the voice of God to every soul. We should lose no opportunity of performing deeds of mercy, of tender forethought and Christian courtesy for the burdened and the oppressed. End of quote. And that brings us to our three discussion questions for this week. We often understand the function of prophecy as predicting the future. How does the recognition of the Old Testament prophets focus on the world in which they lived change your perception of the role of a prophet? Two, the lives and messages of the prophets demonstrate how difficult and dangerous it can be to stand up for truth. Why do you believe they did what they did and spoke in the way they did? And three, in the writings of the prophets, God seems to alternate between being angry and showing deep concern for his people. How do you fit together these two aspects of God's character? And to summarise this week's lesson, the Old Testament prophets were passionate and often angry and upset defenders of the way and will of God to their people. Reflecting the expressed concern of God himself, this passion included a strong focus on justice for the poor and oppressed. The prophets called to return to God included putting an end to injustice, something God also promised to do in his visions for a better future for his people. Inside Story Our mission story this week is titled Revenge and Forgiveness. It's by Andrew McChesney of Adventist Mission. The long blade of the machete glinted as 21-year-old Wilder swung it over his head. His eyes flashed with anger. He aimed for his stepfather's neck. At that moment, his stepfather, Alberto Rue Caresma, raised his arm and the blade sliced deeply into his forearm. Alberto spent the next 24 days 
in the hospital at Saotome, capital of the island nation of Saotome and Principe off the West African coast. He underwent surgery and doctors put a metal plate in his arm. He angrily plotted revenge. He would get a machete and cut Wilder's arm too. After his biological father pulled some connections, Wilder wasn't arrested. He had attacked his stepfather over a scolding. Lying in the hospital bed, Alberto noticed that a woman, Maria Rita, came every day to visit her brother injured in a motorcycle accident in the same room. He admired her kindness to her brother and announced one day, I have fallen in love with you. No, Maria Rita replied. I don't want to have a husband. All men should be thrown into the fire. Her reaction surprised Alberto, who realised that she was carrying hurt from a past relationship. He could understand. At the age of 44, he had had three common-law wives, and the son of his most recent wife had tried to kill him. Maria Rita didn't want to discuss marriage. She changed the subject to God. God is love, and God can change your life and make you a new creation, she said. God will help you to forget what happened and forgive that boy. After being released from the hospital, Alberto saw Maria Rita occasionally on the street. One day, she invited him to attend a 40-day revival meeting at her Seventh-day Adventist church. Alberto was fascinated by the presentations and was baptised five months later. Later, he proposed to Maria Rita and she accepted. Today, Alberto, pictured below, is 50 and works as foreman at a cement warehouse. He also is the treasurer, stewardship director and Sabbath school teacher at his local church. He is praying for an opportunity to share with Wilder how God changed his life. The two sometimes meet on the street and exchange greetings. He laughed when reminded that Wilder tried to kill him the last time they had a serious conversation. I'm not worried, because God is with me, he said. You have been listening to a reading of the Adult Sabbath School Bible Study Guide by Dr. Percy Harold from Queensland, Australia. This service is brought to you by Hope Channel, the Sabbath School Department and Christian Services for the Blind. Remember, God is always faithful.